All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today I am super excited to have uh, Pastor Brent Bosterman with us, who is, uh, well, he's a pastor, and uh, he's also, uh, folks who are going to be tuning in uh, into today's show, uh, know him as the author of the book, The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, an Interpretation and Refinement of the Theological Apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. And so folks who are interested in presuppositionalism are going to find this um, episode. Um, well, I guess you could find the, our past like seven episodes have been on some application of presuppositionalism. But if you're interested in the relationship between the Trinity and uh, transcendental argumentation and presuppositionalism in general, you guys um, are going to find this episode very, very helpful in that uh, regard. So um, without further ado, I just want to make a couple of announcements real quick. Um, on Saturday at 2 p.m., I'm going to be having Dr. James Anderson on um, to discuss the nature of transcendental arguments. And uh, those of you who um, were disappointed in the fact that um, the interview with Jeff Durbin fell through, uh, we are in the works of rescheduling that. And so we're going to see if we can get him on to discuss the topic of applying presuppositionalism to competing religious perspectives. So I want to uh, provide for you guys a wide range of application to show that presuppositionalism is not just this one thing that you use against atheists. It's really a way of thinking that can be applied to all areas uh, of life. So without further ado, let me introduce Pastor Brant Bosterman. And how would you like me to address you? Pastor Brant Bosterman? Any one of those works for me. No problem. You, you can just call me Brant if you want. Okay, I'll call you Brant. And um, why don't you take a few moments just to tell uh, people a little bit about yourself, what you do, and um, and then we'll jump right into the discussion. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote uh, uh, I wrote my book, um, Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, in the late uh, 2000s into, you know, 2012. Uh, yeah, I think 2012, I defended my thesis and um, got it in the process of publication in 2013. And I think it ended up, you know, getting released in like 2014. Yeah. But for me, literally... Um, so I defended my thesis, I want to say, you know, April 4th of 2012. And it, it wasn't four weeks before I was gathering a church plant um, in the Pacific Northwest with without a breath in between, um, you know, opening up our house for barbecues and things like that, um, calling on um, just everybody we knew from a variety of different relations here in the Northwest. I did pretty much all of my academic work in the Seattle area you know, worked at several restaurants, had family out here. And so we just jumped straight into pastoral ministry and the planting of Trinitas Presbyterian Church with the PCA. And um, so that's what I've been doing for the last, um, you know, really eight years. Uh, in fact, last Sunday, this Sunday, the fifth or the third was our seven year anniversary service from our launch date in uh, May of 2013. So I've just had my hands full. Um, you know, people sometimes, you know, I'll get emails and things like that, you know, asking you about, you know, whether or not I, um, you know, am, am writing anything. And, you know, I have projects that I'm working on. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty guarded about sharing any of it just because I can't make any deadline right now. I'd hate to get anyone excited about whatever, <laughs> whatever I'm thinking about because, um, you know, the, the work of pastoral ministry, having four kids um, under the age of 11, uh, you just can't make any promises. It's like it says in Proverbs, you just, you can't talk about what's going to happen tomorrow in this season of life. And so, you know, presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism, it affects my preaching. 
surely affects, you know, even my Christian counseling, um, you know, Jay Adams, you know, classic uh, presuppositionalist, highly influenced by Van Til. And, um, and it still, it still affects my evangelistic encounters. I, I try to have those as frequently as possible off the cuff conversations with, um, with people whenever I'm out. And, um, so, so yeah, it has bearing on everything I do, but unfortunately I haven't had the opportunity or really the time at this point to put together or jump into a debate or something like that. Sure. But I look forward to, to a time when I can do more of that again. Yeah, and, and yeah. I like the uh, explanation you give, just being honest with the fact that uh, you're doing family life and you're doing ministry. And even though online apologetics is really um, popular and it's important, obviously, um, but a lot of people just want to get down and dirty in these debates and see this person against that person. They forget that apologetics, is, while very important, is just one aspect of a broader world and life view, which involves things like ministry. I mean, you're a, you're a pastor. So while you, you write great material in, in your dissertation, your book there, you're also living life and, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, ministering to people. And so I yeah. want to encourage people who are listening, uh, try to have a balanced life and a balanced ministry. Don't just be so uh, much engaged in apologetics that you forget that there are other areas of life that need to be attended to. Um, and they are all under the category of bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So you can't tell on the one hand, presuppositionalism holds up the word of God and our thoughts are captive to Christ, yet you are not you know, doing that in those other areas of life. We're called to be consistent with that in that regard. So, uh, yeah. I appreciate that, Elliot. You know, the, you know, you, I think about even the time when I was writing uh, uh, Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, um, it's kind of a mouthful to keep saying. Uh, but I think at the time when I was writing that, and, you know, and I had done a debate with a Unitarian, um, and it wasn't specifically, you know, a, a presuppositional tag sort of a thing with an atheist. It was obviously quite different, um, you know, in that it was more of, you know, reasoning with the cults and things like that. But, um, you know, there were opportunities. I, I did that in like, two, I want to say 2006 or seven. I, I, I don't recall but there were opportunities to do things like that when I was writing my thesis, you know, and there were plenty of opportunities to jump into online forums and debates and things like that. And I don't mean to devalue those things at all, but part of what I had to do while I was writing was ask, you know, what, what is the more important contribution that I can be making here? Um, you know, engaging every opportunity to do a, a presuppositional debate, you know, here, there or online or to, um, to really advance, you know, pre presuppositional thinking and, um, you know, the Vantillian system, you might say, which, which of those two things is going to be the better use of my time? You know, I had to, had to weigh those things out because there are plenty of opportunities for me to potentially, you know, expended a great deal of energy and effort and exactly the sorts of things you're talking about. And again, I don't mean to devalue that, but we all have to ask ourselves, and this is, this is part of being a presuppositionalist, we all have to ask ourselves um, what the Lord, who is the beginning of, of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, what he would have us do um, with our time as the most useful contribution to the ends of his kingdom. And, and so, so I would say my, my book is the fruit of that sort of pumping of the brake saying, you know, you can't pursue every opportunity right. that sits right. in front of you. And I often tell, you know, younger men, um, you really haven't even found your calling in the ministry yet, probably unless you've turned down point blank three other opportunities for the ministry. Um, that's probably your first clue. I mean, if there's some 
you know, ministerial caller, you know, just presents itself too quickly and you're ready to just rush into it. It's probably the first clue that um, there's some more discerning and deciphering of things to be done. Well, thank you for that. And um, uh, yeah, so just that encouragement, balance is important. Um, and so I, uh, I hope that God does provide for you other opportunities to uh, hopefully write or engage more. I'm just happy I was able to nab you <laughs> uh, for this little this little nugget, which I'm sure uh, folks are going to enjoy and find uh, useful. So let's just jump right into the bulk of our discussion. Um, I have a list of questions here that I want to run by you, and, and hopefully your answers will produce uh, some side uh, uh, discussion as well that we might uh, veer off into. Um, but these are questions that um, people have been asking and often bring up within the context of, uh, you know, presuppositionalism, the transcendental argument, how the Trinity relates to that. Um, so let's just start from uh, the top here. Uh, first question, what is the summary of Van Til's apologetic in, in, as you see it? If you someone were to say, summarize Van Til's apologetic, how would you understand that? And then from there, we're going to kind of unfold this and get more into how the Trinity relates into, into all of this. All right. You know, I, maybe I'll summarize it this way. Van Til's apologetic has at the heart the question of what is the normal way to think and reason. Mm-hmm. Um, this really sets forth the antithesis between the believer and the unbeliever. Um, the world as we know it carries on as if it's perfectly normal and appropriate when asking questions of epistemology, asking questions about reality, even right and wrong that one must fundamentally start with themselves, whether in a rationalist way where they they heed the basic, you know, uh, laws of logic or whether they start with intuition or whether they start with their experience or overwhelming feeling to gauge and to navigate what's true. Um, We are saying as as presuppositionalists and Van Til is saying that isn't normal if we allow the biblical scheme to tell us what is the norm or the right or the rule for the appropriate way to think and to reason. And in fact, not only is it not normal in that sense of, you know, uh, conforming to a God-given norm, um, it's actually completely vacuous Mm -hmm. to attempt to build a worldview out of oneself and make sense of the world, treating themselves as the starting point. Um, by contrast, the way we were meant to reason, the way that we were meant to view the world and engage the world is by presupposing God, our need for God, his personal communication to us. And once we do that, it puts all of the other tools of learning and understanding in their proper place. And, um, and and so we can develop a coherent view of ourselves in the world and not just a coherent and static one, but one that's growing ever bigger. You know, I mean, the spirit is the one who Jesus promises will lead us into all truth. Um, you know, once we we are reconciled to God in Christ and we're renewed unto knowledge as, you know, Colossians 310 and Ephesians 424, you know, favorite scriptures of Van Til tell us um it's not just that we've got, you know, a tight, closed system of thinking. We, we actually have a way of reasoning that uh, allows for boundless discovery and, and, and better understanding of ourselves, God, and the world. And so you have this antithesis, um, you know, the abnormal, fallen, depraved thinking of mankind that begins with man as an autonomous, self-guided unit, 
or even a self-guided society. And, um, you know, uh, God-centered thinking that begins with God as a necessary part and his guidance is a necessary part of right reasoning. And, and, and the beauty of the Vantillian apologetic claim is that reasoning by thinking God's thoughts after him and beginning with him can be summarily vindicated, not just as the right way to think, but as the only way to think in a fashion that is um, uh, consistent and coherent and, um, you know, life-giving. Yeah. Now, you made, uh, an important comment there where you said that our need for God, and I want to point out for folks that the need for God is coming from a pastor. So the pastor is probably, people probably think all oh, the pastors talking about our need for God. It's, I don't think you just are necessarily referring to that existential need, like we need God. I, I think we would agree with this, that epistemologically speaking, right? Epistemologically speaking, we need God to ground knowledge. So it's not just merely this pastoral practical we need God. That's true. But just yeah. think properly. Uh, we right. need to acknowledge uh, acknowledge God. Now, you said something about starting with um, ourselves in kind of a rationalistic sense, in an autonomous sense, versus starting with God. Now, there's a big hullabaloo all the time, and it's always part of the criticisms of presuppositionalism, uh, that people say you have to start with yourself. How can you not start with yourself? So what does it even mean uh, to start with God? You're mixing up epistemology and ontology. How would you speak to that? Yeah, one almost feels like when people raise that criticism, especially if they have any acquaintance with uh, presuppositionalism, that it's almost a, a willful lack of understanding at some point. And I understand that some people really don't get what we mean when we say that, as if like somehow I could jump out of my own consciousness and you know start somewhere else. Um, but we're speaking of a, <laughs> we're speaking of a different so sort of priority um, for the Vantillian, and and really this is you know for Calvin. Um, for John Calvin, you know, man knows himself as immediately in time as he knows God and God as immediately as he knows himself. That's strictly unavoidable um, that, you know, temporally man has an inherent knowledge of the creator in whose image he is made. But when we speak about starting with ourself versus starting with God, we're talking about a primacy of place who the highest authority is in uh, guiding your beliefs and guiding the formation of your beliefs. And so there's that sort of priority, that logical priority that's given to the highest authority um, in, any, in any given matter. And so that's what we mean as presuppositionalists. We're, we're not trying to suggest again that, you know, we can jump out of our own consciousness and uh, you know, be another person or something like that. Um, it would virtually imply that we were attempting to, you know, be God if we were to start in that first person uh, existential sense. But we, but it's to say that, yeah, we give God's guidance and we give His reality um, the highest place as the most illuminating truth to all other truths that put all other truths in their proper place. Yeah. Would you say? Would you say then that? Uh there's an important distinction between what we would call proximate starting points versus ultimate starting points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, and that's a distinction that kind of pervades, you know, uh, I, again, reformed thinking, you know, we can talk about um, secondary causes and we can talk about, you know, the God as this, you know, first cause and, you know, sovereign providential governor of all things. And we, we have to start with ourselves as a proximate beginning place Um and what thoughts we articulate about God in the course of time as we, you know, develop acquaintance with human language 
is going to be in English or German or Dutch or Spanish or whatever it may be. So yes, in that sense, that proximate starting point um, is an unavoidable aspect of things. But one of the things, one of the reasons we can trust that our proximate starting point isn't so perhaps damning or blinding or all-encompassing as to be the most important is precisely because we give the weight to God as the most important light of all of the lights that we might encounter um, in making sense of the world and in making sense of ourselves. And it's one of the reasons why presuppositionalism is just in, you, you think about the, we acknowledge on the one hand, um, the importance of presuppositions and the, the importance of perspectives and things like that. But we don't fall into the trap of the postmodernist who fundamentally says there is no reality outside of the text or outside of the language or language game in which we find ourselves. Um, you know, that's so magnifying the proximate starting point that I, as a man, can't transcend my condition as a man, or if not that, a white man. And, you know, you just take all of the, you know, subcategories, you know, down the line. Um, that's why we don't fall into that same trap of, again, postmodern thinks, thinking and, you know, really, in many ways, neo-Marxist thinking, but go on. I know some people who disagree with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm amazed. I am amazed. I was just listening to a lecture by Greg Bonson. Um, yeah. He addressed this issue as to why we're not stuck in a postmodern predicament, uh, which we don't have yeah. to get into here. But I mean, it's amazing how people can read, uh, you know, read Bonson and Van Til and come away with the fact that postmodernism is, is the inevitable conclusion of such an understanding. I think it's uh, uh, quite baffling to me. But let, let's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, it is baffling. And, you know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, it, sometimes the accusation I think you're make, pointing out, it can be leveled against us by, say, other apologists of other camps or other schools. And the accusation can also get made against us, you know, that we haven't sufficiently felt the problem from, you know, those who are uh, entrenched in postmodern thinking. Sure. And, you sure. know, our, our point is really that there's there is this story that that is bigger than my story. If there's this story that's bigger than all of our stories, and it's frankly more illuminative than all of our stories. And I would just have to level the criticism back to the postmodernist who says that we're stuck in some sort of a subjectivist rut, you know, where, we're, where we can't transcend our, uh, you know, again, our, our cultures and subcultures and you name it. I would just point out, you also tell a meta narrative and a story about every story. It just happens to be a very, very short story. There's just a universe of colliding, you know, a galaxies of thinking and thought. There's nothing to mediate between them. They collide and somehow you smuggle in these ideas of, you know, a, a utopian synthesis at the end of all of these, you know, potentially bloody revolutions or, you know, suppressive governments and proletariats rise. I don't know where you get that from, but you're still telling a story, a very short story about everything. And it's just that, you know, there's this these disparate belief systems and language games that somewhat overlap and um, inevitably they collide and whoever has strength or power at a given time, they, you know, somehow you smuggle in this notion of justice. They deserve to be, you know, overtaken by some other subversive game, but that's still a meta narrative. It's still a story. Sure. It's just, sure. it's not, it's not a particularly interesting one. It's not a particularly helpful one if we're trying to Ever have any like meeting the mind? Very true. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a self-refuting story as it attempts to say there are no meta narratives by provide by providing a meta narrative. 
it's painful. I mean, it, it's the sort of thing, I mean, it comes out everywhere. It comes out in, you know, Peter Enns's, you know, hermeneutic where it's like, we're supposed to treat, you know, every pericope, every text, every story is its own thing and let the conflict be there and not allow the, the meta narrative of scripture to inform the individual part. And again, I just feel like Peter, you're allowing a meta narrative to affect everything. Again, it's, it's just a very short story. It's right. the short story of colliding stories in the universe that don't perfectly overlap and have different perspectives that don't harmonize and things like, I just, you're selling a meta narrative. You're selling a whole story. Where did you get that from Peter? Did yeah. you get yeah. that big story about colliding, you know, uh, unsynthesizable stories, you know, in the universe from the Bible? I I, I don't think you did. Yeah. So where yeah. did get it from. And that's where, you know, I, I, it's hard not to see, um, again, autonomous reasoning at the heart mm. of, of what he's proposing. And really, I, one would think capitulating to. Mm. Uh, well, let's jump to our, our next question. Um, our next question here is, uh, what role does the Trinity play in presuppositional apologetics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, if we... Uh, sufficiently digest the first point that um, our thinking gives a certain primacy to God himself as, as the most illuminative individual person and speaker in our, in our reality, then it has to play a really big role okay. who God is. And um, obviously God being tripersonal and um, one being is um, one of the unique aspects of our doctrine of God. And for us as presuppositionalists, it answers to and illuminates what is arguably the problem of philosophy, which is the problem of the one and the many. It, 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 it confronts us everywhere. I mean, in the most practical spheres. Stop you there because that I think you're, uh, and I hope you don't mind kind of conversation. Now, um, why don't you explain for people, summarize the problem of the one and the many? Why is it a problem, and how does the Trinity kind of engage with that? And maybe that'll help. Answer sure. the primary question as to how does the Trinity relate to all this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll give, you know, kind of two, um, two angles on it. One more abstract, one more practical. Okay. So the problem of the one and the many, I mean, it, it comes down to the basic problem of predication. How can we use any words to accurately describe the external world? Mm. Um, I, I, it's the problem of, of, of predication and um, the problem of, of truth itself, you know, let's just put it this way. There was a time when people thought that, you know, all swans were swans and, and that was that. And there was some sort of essence or concept of, of swans that you could refine down from every, every particular feature of every swan that you see. And this one essence is born by all the swans. And there's, therefore there, there's something legitimate about this universal concept, this, you could call it an ideal, you name it, being um, being ascribed to a multiplicity of swans. Well, of course, you know, in a, in a Darwinian worldview, there is no static creature called swans. What you're calling a swan now is in the process of becoming potentially something quite different from what it currently is. Right. And right. that raises the question of, you know, whether it's ever legitimate to ascribe that one unitary category to the mass of swans out there? What are you leaving out when you ascribe the one to the many? Can the many things in our experience really be categorized and 
rightly defined and rightly described with the use of universal terms. That's kind of the more abstract way to put it. I mean, the more practical way to put it is let's just consider it, you know, in a season of coronavirus, how you can make laws that capture all of the circumstances and all of the nuances in the different circumstances. How do you get one law in any instance which rightly does justice to everyone in, in all circumstances? You know, we look at these different codes about what can be open and what can't be open over here in Washington State. Well, you're, you're in California. Where are you, Ellie? Oh, oh, by the way, I wanted to correct you. It's Eli, but no worries. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. up since I was little. No worries. Um, and I'm, I'm in New York. Okay, well, there you have it. So how do you have a law that says what sorts of businesses are essential, of all words, and inessential, that doesn't do an injustice to certain people? When you start to put criteria together, you can always find exceptions to that. So the question is, how do we have, whether it be laws, whether it be ideas and words, how do we have these things overlap appropriately and, and, and perfectly with the things we're attempting to describe? And if they don't overlap perfectly, you know, how can we speak truth about anything? Mm. How can we legislate justly about anything? Mm. And this is where, you know, the problem of the one in the many, you know, we encounter it everywhere. In the most practical of realms, in the most, um, in the most abstract of realms. And, you know, to really emphasize the problem, you know, once you've divided the world, we might say, into ideas or an ideal realm and a material realm, the problem really gets tough. What force or power can ensure that things that are ideal accurately make contact with things that are tangible and real? Hmm. Uh, you, you've kind of exhausted all the terms you can talk about, ideal things and real things. It'd be kind of strange to think that there's like a material giant standing above all of reality, forcing the immaterial ideals to mesh with matter. That doesn't really work. At the same time, it's equally challenging to think of an ideal giant who lacks materiality at all, who's somehow lassoing logic and ideas and numerical properties and tying them down to material reality. Mm. So the the problem of the one and the many is, is pretty, pretty damning once you're working with just the world as we know it. And when we speak of the Trinity as being um, the solution to the one and the many, we speak of a personal God who is in himself a perfectly and absolutely overlapping and interpenetrating um, communion of three persons in one being. And he resides above ideal reality as we know it and material existence as we know it. Yeah. He made them both. Neither one of them is ultimate. They don't simply collide and accidentally overlap by chance. He made the both of them. And he's the only one who can, as an absolutely self-knowing and um, self-sufficient being, speak with authority to the effect that the two really make any genuine contact at all. Yes, yeah, so, so you would the problem of uh, philosophical thought on this issue is that they, pro they they emphasize the one over the many, not realizing that one and the many are equally ultimate in creation. There's not one that's more predominant the other, and they are grounded and reflected um, by the one who is the ultimate one in the many. Of that's one, right. Oneness and manyness are equally ultimate. There's not one above the other. That's right. And, you know, an unbelieving thought, you know, really what it is, it's a pendulum swing between the one and the many.
those who emphasize uh, that, uh, for example, reason has, you know, uh, ultimate bearing power. Um, they're, they're emphasizing the one to the point of excluding the many. And so, you know, I just went through um, Spinoza's ethic with two of my philosophy students at Northwest who have since become my um, congregants. And, um, you know, kind of the joke of rationalist philosophy is that um, whenever you really encounter a serious problem, you just declare that whatever that thing is or whatever it pertains to just doesn't exist and you you move on. I mean, how we ever got mistaken to think that it existed, um, it, it, they'll offer certain explanations and Spinoza will do that. But, you know, it, you name it, anything from the concept that man is in any sense uh, free or an original um, source of decisions and actions and not simply himself the product of an infinite you know, causal chain of cause and effect, that's just not real for Spinoza. We're just going to get rid of that. It's just yeah. not going to work. That's the one swallowing up, not just the many, but some of the things that we love most about uh, life and existence and reality that makes it the freshest for us. Um, the, the, the opposite end of that is, is, is the many just taking over. And, and essentially it's the idea that reason itself is just kind of a byproduct of um, wandering existence. And that's, that's where you are in you know, a postmodern world in many respects that um, the different language games and the different ways of thinking and, you know, whatever it may be, you're, you're, you're kind of the, the ethnic cage that I'm in that I can't transcend as a white male, things like that. Um, the way I think is itself tainted by, again, a, a passage of history that's either going nowhere or, you know, strangely going to some sort of utopian synthesis, depending on what you emphasize. But yeah. Um, my, my next question, uh, what role does the Trinity play in the transcendental argument? Okay, now I can couple it with this question here. Do you think that the transcendental argument is a silver bullet argument that successfully demonstrates the Christian worldview as true by the impossibility of the contrary? And if so, how does the argument demonstrate the triunity of God without further argumentation? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry, I have a really heavy-handed question. We transition real quick. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to just say one thing about the silver bullet, and it's very practical, but then I'll, I'll talk more about, you know, the relevance of, of the Trinity. I do think one of the dangers, practically speaking, about how sometimes presuppositionalism is presented is, is like as the, 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 the shortest distance between two points of encountering an unbeliever and in 30 seconds or less tearing his worldview to shreds and, you know, uh, bringing him to this point of, um, you know, consternation about the brokenness of his belief system. And don't get me wrong. Um, I, I do think there's something about presuppositionalism that um, it allows uh, one to go to the jugular, you might say, and, and just immediately go to the presuppositions that someone holds. Um, unfortunately, I feel like practically uh, presuppositionalism is sometimes popularly presented as a, a mode of apologetics which renders someone completely unconversational. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the, an exception to that rule would surely be, well, I mean, there are many exceptions, but a very good exception to that would be Doug Wilson. Um, very capable. Really, the presuppositionalists should be able to start with and engage almost any thought sure. And, and, sure. and make their way back to the absolute bearing power and relevance of her God. 
Um, there's a way to just keep saying whenever they say, you know, I don't know what you're saying. Well, you just said that, you know, that, you know, and then just, and, and just <laughs> never get out of this loop that you might ever address or touch on anything else under the sun that is interesting. Right. Um, really the opposite ought to be the case. And I feel like sometimes when people talk, you know, describe it as a silver bullet in those terms, it's just, again, it's almost, I sometimes feel like I'm talking to someone who just has the most in, patient desire to wrap up the apologetic task, um, which, I mean, re really isn't even just a fruit of the spirit of which, you know, patience is a big part of it. Because fact right. is, um, even when you've articulated very well, you know, one's epistemolo epistemological reliance on the Trinity, you can imagine why it would still take a lot of labor for someone who's not acquainted with this sort of thing to understand what you're talking about. Sure. Uh, okay. So, but let's, let's speak specifically to the question. If I recall correctly, the question asked, do I believe that, that the Trinity is absolutely necessary to the transcendental argument? Do you want me to um, repeat the question? Repeat the question. Yeah. yeah. It was a little mouthful, but uh, I'll do it slowly here because I kind of uh, fused two questions into one. What role does the Trinity play in the transcendental argument? And do you think the transcendental argument is a silver bullet argument that successfully demonstrates the Christian worldview is true by the impossibility of the contrary? And if so, how does the argument demonstrate the triunity of God without further argumentation? Okay. So I suspect the question kind of wants one to, to refine down the transcendental argument to the absolutely necessary components and just and to, to, to distill out of it the unnecessary components. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's a remarkably uh, um, classical apologetical sort of way of asking the question. Um, what role does it play? Well, if I'm talking to a Muslim, it plays a profoundly important role. Um, if I'm talking to Joe Unbeliever, whether I you know delve into the point that the, the, the presupposition and the God who we must presuppose is the beginning of fear and, of the fear and the knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Um, whether I need to, to delve into Trinity right then and there with that guy, I don't know that I do. But let me explain the sense in which the Trinity is relevant every time I'm talking about the transcendental argument. See, the transcendental argument isn't just that without the God of Scripture, your worldview is vacuous and all of your beliefs are not only without justification, but they can't even bear the status of being true. That's not the end of, of the transcendental argument to, to get to that point and then say, and now you need to presuppose our God. Right. The right. end of the transcendental argument is that once we brought someone to the point that the worldview that they outwardly espouse is empty and vacuous, is to bring them to the next step of realizing they've never really lived in that world that they've created for themselves is kind of a house of cards. They've always actually known the God of scripture who speaks with authority, both in natural revelation and in his word, and they have trampled on him. They've breathed his air without ever praising him. And therefore the end of the transcendental argument is that the person with whom we are speaking is profoundly guilty. They're guilty in a way that merits, um, you know, eternal death, eternal suffering. That's the position they're in. Therefore, the God they need isn't just a profoundly useful presupposition. They need the God who has an eternal son whom he sent into the world to assume human flesh. 
and to live the life that we have deprived our creator of and, and, and deprived him of the obedience that he so deserves. And he, he died the death in our stead that we so deserve. Mm. And, and, and furthermore, not only did he do that, but he sent his Holy Spirit to open the hearts of people who are his mortal enemies otherwise sure. so that they right. can receive him and believe on him. And so without that God at the end of your transcendental argument, the one I just talked about, your transcendental argument is useless. It has, it's no good to anyone without the Trinity in, in, in the economic, economic Trinity who is the savior of mankind. Now, if I'm talking to someone who I, you know, I sense can um, you know, take in something of the depths of the one many, many problem, and I have you know, found people like this um, impromptu many times, I might have brought to bear the importance of the Trinity to our epistemology at the front end. But at the back end of your transcendental argument, after we've reduced an unbeliever's worldview to nescience, we always have to talk about the Trinity. Sure. What good would it be? We're not people, we're not salesmen peddling, uh, you know, presuppositions that make your puzzle work. Mm. We're apologists bringing people to Christ. And we've really gone off the rails and missed what this whole thing is about if if we don't understand, you know, the absolute relevance of the Trinity uh, to our, our transcendental argument. Mm. And, 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 and honestly, I do fear that, um, unfortunately, that's kind of what transcendental, you know, argumentation has been treated as, is, mm. you know, mm. some, some premise that, you know, lets me have all my beliefs, plus yeah. a few. Yeah. It's, it's not that. It's something that drives you to the cross. And if, if presuppositionalism has not been that for you traditionally and how you're using it and reasoning with people, um, you're not doing what Van Til prescribed. Mm. You're doing mm. something else. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. I think it brings it brings unity to the whole Christian yeah. life view because you just brought argument together with the purpose of our being Christians and our goal that Christ has sent us out to accomplish, not just crushing someone in a, in a discussion. And I think I, I like how you emphasize that. And I also like that you emphasize um, which, which, if there are non-Christians listening to this, they might want to explore this a little more because, like, wait, I think I caught him saying that, and that's, that's remarkable. You said that once you destroy the worldview, you point out the fact that they never really lived in that world. In other words, right. what they confessed with their mouth, they didn't actually live in those categories. You can deny the Trinity, for example, but you can't help but function in one and many categories. You can deny God, but you can't help but function in a world that, you know, you can't help but function in a way that only makes sense if God exists. Um, that right. leads to the issue of the knowledge of God that the unbeliever has, which is a very, very important aspect of presuppositionalism and Christian theology that I think needs to be um, hashed out a little more clearly. Not in this in this show, because we have some more questions pertaining to what we were yeah. you know, originally going to talk about. But the nature of the unbeliever's knowledge of God, I think, is a profoundly important question. Because I think a lot of people, you know, unbelievers will say, well, how dare you tell me that I believe in God? I don't believe in God. So, you mm -hmm. know, that's one of the things against presuppositionalists. You know, you're just an arrogant guy telling me what I believe. And there, there right. is some nuance there and some unfolding of that. Perhaps, you know, I, uh, we can cover that in a later episode. You know, we'll definitely uh, try to cover that material like we just recorded. Eli, if I can just in interject something here, you know, I, so I've, I've uh, worked in the capacity as a, a logic professor for, you know, I, I, over 10 years now. Sure. And, sure. Um, 
you know, for me, the project of, you know, talking to people about their, their knowledge of God, despite their lack of acknowledgement of him, you know, I, 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 I compare it, you know, when I'm talking to people to the task I go through as a logic professor, most people don't have names for the way they reason. You know, you will see your five-year-old reason with you and, and grasp the significance of what he said and the implications of what he told you when he's trying to tell a lie and get a little bit scared. It, you're using these things always. Hmm. And, you know, what we're doing in a logic class is um, it, it's actually confusing for people sometimes. People think maybe if I take a logic class, I should be able, better at, you know, arguments and things like that, which is almost never the case at the end of a logic class. Um what you're actually better at is is naming and, and identifying what you've been doing all along. Mm-hmm. Um, you and me could probably listen to um, any song that's a popular song and go, yeah, yeah, I can tell why that's popular. And, you know, if we're ignoramuses about music, we wouldn't know that M- Michael Jackson's Billie Jean is driven by the bass line. You know, we, but someone who, who knows music can say that. They have a name for it. We can go, wow, that's a really catchy tune. And we have this power of recognition of, you know, of something that in the course of time, someone will go, yeah, that's because, you know, w- what your ears heard and you liked was this instrument called the bass. Now you're going to hear it in every song and you're going to notice it. But that's really what what I'm doing in my logic class. And that's really what we're doing with the unbeliever. And it really is just this simple. We're saying to the, the unbeliever that they know something that neither experience nor logic can tell them. Um, there, if you've taught a logic course, you'd know there is no uh, silver bullet axiom that says logic itself has bearing power on the external world. Logic can't build a bridge out of itself to reality as you know it. Hmm. Could just be, you know, in some sense, you could say that maybe the law of identity is perfectly true in this language of logic, but as regards reality as we know it, it just isn't that way. You also didn't learn logic applies to reality from reality. That's kind of the end of, um, or from material reality. That's kind of one of the points of of David Hume's philosophy. You have to always have already been presupposing that your laws and modes of thought um, make genuine contact with the world outside of you. Well, I'm going to tell the unbeliever that fundamental belief that you enter the world with, that you never question, that right there is what it means to presuppose God. You believe in something bigger than reason and material reality as you know it. You always have. You've lived and moved and breathed in the air and the atmosphere of his presence, but you have scorned him and you've not acknowledged him. And it doesn't matter if it's something that you are conscious of. It's something that nevertheless, you've been taking for granted all the time. And you know, several different sermons and things I've described, you know, Final judgment is like a moment where everyone's had an experience that, you know, they've been in a room and a fan's been going the entire time. And there comes, you know, if if it's been on the whole time, you just don't hear it. It's just this resonant noise. And you might even think it was silent. But when the fan does go off, all of a sudden you go, oh, I've been listening to a fan this whole time. Well, you know, the last judgment will be this frightful recognition that you've been living a dance to the music of a God singing his loving kindness to you at all times, even in your worst moments. But even then, you still have this sense that 
you can, you know, trust your senses and reality is there and you get up and you walk around on ground as if it's going to be firm. And it's going to be um, even even more damning than that moment when you realize you, you've been listening to a fan the whole time. You, you are you are indebted to this this God who has been speaking, um, speaking a sort of common grace to you at all times. And that common grace will then uh, be the very opposite because you've 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 never turned to him, even when it was pointed out to you, um, whether by the presuppositional apologists or by scripture. So those are some of the ways I like to go about describing, you know, what we mean when we, we talk about man's um, inescapable knowledge of God. That was excellent. I think that's an excellent point. Just real quick, a tech issue. Um, some people are hearing some feedback. So some are suggesting that you turn my uh, the volume of me down on your computer a little bit. Sure. Um, and uh, not to undermine what you just said, that was, I think that was an excellent explanation. <laughs> excellent. Well, I turned you down to half. I guess we'll hear from people. Um, yeah, it's kind of an echoey room I'm in. Sorry about that. No, no, don't worry. It's not terrible. It's only when I start talking while you're talking, it, it'll, the little feedback, but I think right. it, it should be fine. Uh, that you know, was I one more thing. I know I'm just going on and on about the same question and, you sure. know, I just, okay. I think there's so many valuable things that are worth saying. Um, but I think another aspect of the question that I, I think for us as presuppositionalists, we have a greater sense of um, the relevance of one's position in time and space to our apologetic um, than would say perhaps a classical apologist or, or, or someone else. And, and he, here's what I mean about this. You know, we deliver a presuppositional argument. We're delivering it to people at different stages on life's way. And, you know, to people at different stages in covenantal history. And here's the thing, how much I need to tell an individual about this, the God I'm describing, the God of scripture, depends significantly on what stage of life in existence one is at. And my big brother left the faith when he was 18. For me, when I have a presuppositional, you know, dialogue with him, and there have been countless, he's my single chief, you know, partner of, of discussion. He, you know, is really the one who kind of uh, negatively, you might say, sent me on the path that I'm on. Our conversations are, if they're serious, they're never less than three hours. They're just never less than three hours. And the amount that I, I bring to bear of the specificity of this God, my, my brother has kind of uh, bounced around from different worldviews, from you know pure naturalism to Sufism, which is um, a, a mystical form of Islam. Uh, he's been all over the map. The way I have articulated the, pre the tag to my my brother has been radically different with the same person in terms of what information is necessary to bring to bear. Sure. And it's not unlike when you think about um, your kids. It's like. Do my kids know me, their father? Of course they do. They know me to the degree that um, my two 11-year-old daughters need to, and my, my youngest son, five, to the degree that he, he needs to. For, for me to explain to my youngest son how it is that I'm totally necessary to his world as he knows it, it's just a different thing than to explain that to my daughters. They can... They need to they need to understand more. They need to hear more about what it is I'm doing all day when I leave the house than my, my boy does. Um, my five-year-old, um, what it means for me to provide for him is that I go to a store 
with this card and I bring food home that after I, I swipe this card and for all he knows, I guess I have the magic card that he, he doesn't. It, it's attached somewhat to the fact that I've worked, but you know, making that connection is a very different thing than, than for my daughters. Um, it's, it's similar. Therefore, I would just say when we're talking to an unbeliever and we're explaining in the sense in which God is absolutely necessary to um, putting their worldview right and, and really even more importantly to actually redeeming them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to just point out to people in general that I think, you know, what evangelists have been doing from the beginning, whether, you know, we're talking about Billy Graham or we're talking about, you know, those are the first great awakening, um, you know, Whitfield and, you know, men like that. I would argue that what they're doing is significantly more like what a presuppositionalist does than um, surely an evidentialist or a, a classical apologist. What they're doing is they're just summarily crushing a worldview saying, you are a sinner, you know it, you're condemned. It, it implies the whole time that you know that, that God is. And some people are already to the point where they're not so combative in their worldview. The spirit has brought them to a point where they're like, yeah, that's, that's all true. And now here I come with the medicine. Here I come, you know, with the God whom you've spurned this whole time. And I have good news that he has grace in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, for where they're at, they, they're ready to step out of their worldview and into another worldview. They've lived the contradiction of trying to make sense of things by themselves and yet still being under con condemnation. And, and they're ready to walk into, you know, full-fledged faith in Christ. And remarkably... Those people sometimes are better presuppositionalists than the most well-read presuppositional apologists that I encounter. Mm. People who just believe utterly what their God has spoken to them in scripture, even in ways that sometimes seem utterly naive. And, you know, I, I get worried sometimes with presuppositional apologists who think that Van Tiller Bonson has saved them so that they get to be smart people and Christian. Mm. They get to be wise and learned people and Christian. They might even get to be smarter than the unbeliever. I don't care who you are, how smart you are. There are moments in your walk with Christ where things just don't make sense. Sure. Where even the best, most articulate articulation of Christianism is somehow for some reason lost on you because you know what? You're just sick and your mind isn't working the way that you want it to. You are going to be that same sort of presuppositionalist that a relatively naive believer is in that moment. And you're going to have to really treat the Lord as your only medicine, your only hope and your only peace. And I'll say in the course of writing my thesis, I said this in all sorts of podcasts. It just, I'd get to the end of certain weeks and I'd be like, I don't see the argument anymore. I just, I, I don't, actually, it looks horrible. I can't even see what I'm saying. I don't even understand. And I just would have to go, this is when um, I'm going to enjoy the weekend with my wife and take a nap and um, celebrate the life that I have in Christ. And um, that's my medicine. Uh, more reading isn't going to do it right now. Right. Um, all right. So go on, move on, ask another question. All right. Well, that, that's all excellent stuff, man. And I really like, I, again, um, this is a good mix of we're intellectually grappling with stuff and you're kind of explaining and then you're bringing it to that important practical aspect. I think those are vitally important to have. And I think in a very real way that would separate uh, 
what a lot of apologetic YouTube channels do, where they just focus on the arguments and they talk hours and hours about the complexity of uh, the human body. I think these two things need to be brought together. And I think you did that very beautifully. All right. So let's yeah. let's, let's go back to the intellectual questions, though, because I know people still want to know them. Um, yeah. OK, so next question. Um, if the Trinity provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility and knowledge and a philosophical answer to the one and the many problem, how did man prior to the Bible or to having access to the Bible and the knowledge of the Trinity justify their knowledge claims? In other yeah. words, can one justify claims without uh, can 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 one justify claims of knowledge without believing the Trinity? Or you know, what's up yeah. with that? Well, you know, for, forgive me for saying that. You know, this question really just bleeds together with the first one. I mean, it, sure. it is the it is the same question. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So let's speak more specifically about our knowledge of God and you know what extent of it and how much of it is necessary. Um, okay, so. Let's take the scenario of let's let's take the scenario of the Old Testament believer. I mean, I think the question asked specifically before there was uh, he says something like before there was the Bible. Does he say that? Yeah. So so let me read the first part again without yeah. linking them all together. So the question was, if the Trinity provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility and knowledge and a philosophical answer to the one and the many, how did man prior to the Bible or okay. prior to having access to the Bible? have knowledge if they didn't right. read the trinity they didn't know about the trinity so how right okay so first off i mean i just i want to say obviously as a covenant you know theologian you know a believer in the reformed faith I, I wouldn't say there was ever a time in human history where man lacked supernatural revelation and in fact you know how supernatural revelation was preserved prior to moses it's just not known to us mm -hmm. um but the idea that man had supernatural revelation, not only prior to Moses, but even prior to the fall is kind of a staple of Van Til's uh, presuppositional argument. Okay. Man has always been spoken to uh, by God in some capacity. Um, you know, he spoke to Adam. There was pre-redemptive revelation in the form of theophany, prophecy, and miracle. Um, Adam is arguably more culpable in the fall because he's actually experienced unlike any other human being an actual miraculous work of God in himself. Personally, his wife was made from his side and he saw it. Uh, formerly there was no woman and then there was, and it was from him. And so in that respect, we would say that man has always enjoyed uh, speech from God. It would be problematic if we said there was pure silence in human history Somehow mankind lapsed into sin in the fall without explicit knowledge of God or any commandments. And then all of the sudden, now this, this creator God is this presupposition who, you know, we discovered that that wouldn't, that wouldn't work. In fact, the only way that we can discover that the one true God is with prior knowledge of him. And therefore, we, that's why we have to say that at the end of the day, everybody has a sort of natural knowledge of God. And we go... Uh, the next part of the question is, do we have to know him as a trinity? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say this. We have to know him as above pure reason and above material reality as those two places, you know, are kind of the center of, um, you know, the, the one many problem. We need a God who does not belong to the created sphere, 
He cannot therefore be represented in stones and in wood and in all of the idolatrous means that the world would create. And he also cannot be represented as a pure point of philosophy. And the distinction between those two, therefore, um, God just being kind of a projection of our minds and God being a projection, you know, or a, you know, some sort of fetish religion based on material reality sure. is that God has got to speak. He has to speak and to confront us as a person. It's the only way that he can be the brighter light and hence presupposition for us than, um, than uh, the, the world around about us. So once we, we, we have in mind a creator God who speaks now we're going to have to attach him to some actual concrete revelation that's redemptive and, you know, speaking to us in a redemptive way. That's what we would say that the people of God had for all time from the beginning, whether it happens to be Adam and Eve before and after the fall or the faithful line of Seth as it culminates. Well, first, you know, dissipates and, then you know, nevertheless, there's the remnant of Noah in his family. And then there's the Noahic covenant. And then shortly thereafter, there's the Abrahamic covenant and you name it. There has to be a creator God who transcends the one many problem and who speaks. I would say notably, given that in the ancient world, the alternatives to the creator God of whom I'm talking about and who speaks happen to be just that. Gods who are specifically tied down to natural phenomenon, you know, again, fetish deities of different sorts. And therefore, it wouldn't have been very hard in that ancient world to distinguish um, this one true creator speaker God who was represented in and by the people of Israel and um, uh, uh, fr from the alternatives as utterly vacuous. Mm -hmm. There weren't, so far as we know, a bunch of other contenders in terms of religion who were both monotheistic um, and, um, and a, a God who speaks in, in a concrete revelation. That's how we can know God in this positive way where we have justified beliefs and we increase in knowledge and understanding. Um, the whole world is condemned by the Adamic knowledge that we all have. We were all rendered guilty in Adam. Um, we have a vestige of that original knowledge of God in ourselves. And so that's how the world can have enough knowledge to know God. But then they're, they're fraught with the contradiction that they immediately, um, as a disposition of their fallen nature, um, deny that same knowledge and fashion, you know, gods in the image of creatures. And notably at this point, when you go out to the world um, that is pre-Christian, you would say, or un-Christian as of yet, you encounter exactly that, a world of, again, idol worship. Um, so that, again, the uniqueness of what we're saying is rarely lost on a people that we encounter anew. The reason why we have, you know, why we articulate the Trinity now in context where we have Unitarians, Deists, um, Muslims, and you name it, is because all of those religions are just faux Christianity attempting to create a man-made version of this religion while dispensing with parts that um, pure reason doesn't like. And that's why we end up having to articulate a very much more specific God in the world that we are currently in. And this, again brings up the point that the presuppositionalist understands that where we are in space and time makes a difference in terms of how we articulate this argument. We, we're not going to be able to, in the same way, refine down and be like, well, here are the eight things that must be mentioned in every presuppositional argument. 
in the same way, perhaps that, uh, you know, I Aquinas would say, here are the four things that someone has to have to have natural knowledge of God or something like that. But go ahead. So, okay. So if we think the transcendental, and this is a question that just came to me in light of what you're saying. So mm -hmm. if we think the transcendental argument for the Christian worldview is biblical, it mm -hmm. is the right way we should argue. Of course, that doesn't exclude other things that we could use. I mean, we definitely can appeal to evidence in various contexts and stuff like that. Yes. Um, yes. How would we think an Old Testament believer should argue with the pagan? Could a prophet in the Old Testament say, for example, unless you presuppose mm -hmm. the God of Israel, you're reduced to absurdity. Now, when he refers to the God of Israel, does the prophet know of the triunity of God? Is that even relevant? If triunity, yeah. you know, oneness and multiplicity, those are all important, you know, epistemo for epistemological reasons. Yeah. No, I would say what he knows is that he transcends the one and many problem, even if he wouldn't articulate it that way. Mm. And the fact that he has less revelation or understanding at that point, perhaps, than we do, um, it, it is irrelevant, especially when your alternative gods that you're encountering in the world round about you manifestly don't transcend the problem. Sure. Um, and again, you'd say, well, then that's just an accidental property of the world in which they lived, wherein accidentally no one round about them thought of, you know, articulating something close akin to, um, uh, you know, a, a more monotheistic worldview. Well, that may very well be the case. I have children. I purposely don't expose them to different worldviews and things that they're not ready to combat. That, sure. that again, see, we're not living in the world of floating premises and, and uh, floating arguments that just, you know, we lasso down, you know, no matter where we are in time and space. Mm -hmm. We're living in the covenantal worldview wherein the many of time is made into a continuous whole of development by um, God's sovereign plan. Mm -hmm. And so again, how how the, the ancient Israelite would have argued surely probably would have been significantly different than what it is for us. Um, and I, I would submit that precisely God, you know, discloses to us more relevant information about himself in, you know, the, the time frame of, of scripture and the advance of scripture that would render our witness um, the more powerful mm. in, in the course of redemptive history. And so that's not a problem for me in the same way that it would be a problem for, um, again, I think just like the, the, the purely analytic philosopher is trying to figure out how this would be done, um, how there would be just this one way of arguing at all times. We can allow for more variation. That's part of what it means to believe in a God who harmonizes the one and the many. Mm. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, all right. Uh, my next question would be, let's see here. It seems to follow Okay, so now we're going to get into the series of questions that I think a lot of people are very, very interested in. Not that they weren't interested in the previous ones, but these are the ones that come up a lot. Uh, here's the question. If the Trinity provides the only necessary precondition for knowledge and intelligibility, then it seems to, seems to entail that the triunity of God is necessary for knowledge. But why think God's triunity is necessary? Sure, the fact that God is triune accounts for the issue of the one and the many, but why couldn't God be a binity or a quadrinity? Or you could add, you know, he could be 20 persons in one being, you know. Why, here's the, here's the question. Why must God be free? And how is that connected to epistemological issues like knowledge and having the grounding for it? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and that is the question that, you know, that my book is about answering. You know, I, I, it's probably the number one question that I get, you know, to kind of rephrase it or, you know, to explain it another way. I actually, let me just say what I, I always sense is kind of the implicit desire um, that, that, <laughs> that I get. I think people really, maybe they haven't articulated it to themselves, but I think they really want. Okay. In a strange sort of way, I think what they're always, almost always asking is, um, how could we have deduced the Trinity from pure reason alone before we found out about it? Mm. Uh, as if the way we could argue that God is is necessarily triune, it, if he is necessarily triune, then it's, an, it's a conclusion that we should have been able to come to prior to having the revelation that he is such. And hence, I don't think they know they're asking this, but via pr- pure reason, there should be this purely intuitive set of premises that we should be able to set on the table that would help us arrive at this conclusion. And um, essentially they're going back to the school of St. Victor, you know, Hugh and Richard and, you know, the medievalists who would attempt to offer, you know, arguments for why God must be triune, you know, from, from pure reason. The first thing I want to put out there is that um, I would never attempt to even develop a proof for why we know God must be triune um, had scripture not told me that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, that right there is telling you that what we are doing is we are reasoning within the sphere of a Christian logic and a logic of scripture. We're not reasoning within the sphere of, of, of pure reason. Um, and so I would be very careful to point this out to people. I don't think that you have to know that God is a Trinity to have intelligibility or to have to make sense of the world. I think that you have to know the triune God. Those are two different things. To know that he is a trinity is a, um, a further disclosure of who he is that we get in the course of redemptive history. Okay. But you can know the triune God without having that depth of knowledge of him. How do I know this? John the Baptist knew the triune God. You know, David can speak of having had trust in the triune God from his mother's womb, or rather in God from his womb. Surely all of the people listening know that whatever manner of knowledge that David or John the Baptist had in the womb is something very different than the manner of knowledge that you and me have that's attached to inextricably now a human verbal language. You you know that that sort of knowing that scripture talks to us about is something remarkably different than having read Charles Hodge's systematic theology and the chapter on the Trinity. And they have a real knowledge of God. Um, I would say that child knows the triune God because whether he is articulating it to himself or not, he knows the God who ties his world together, mm-hmm. the one and the many in such a beautiful way that reality is not monotonous, not a pure, painful, exhausting one, and not a many that's so chaotic and so insane that you can't even think a, a thought for a moment. He knows immediately the God who harmonizes those things. Yeah. Now, yeah. turns out, um, in the course of time, and in the course of uh, his development of understanding, in accordance with God's disclosure of who he is, it's very clear that God cannot be other than what he has revealed himself to be once we've discovered he's revealed himself to be that way. And and, and that's where I'm starting from. And hence, you know, the argument that I'm, I'm developing in Trinity and the Vindication is that the only way um, in which God can be perfectly self-contained as a person 
is um, is, is if he's tri-personal. Okay. That is okay. to say, um, every single relationship you can think of happens somewhere. I mean, when I try to start from the ground up and talk to people about my argument and, and Trinity and vindication, I, I tend to do something like this. I go, um, in order to understand the relationship between your present condition or present place in your grandma's house, implicitly, there's got to be a map that contains the two of you. If there's no map where your position is and grandma is, if there's no such map or even conceivably a possible map, you don't know the relationship between your house, your, your location and grandma's house, and you're never going to find it. I mean, there has to be something that contains there needs to be a context that facilitates right. that relationship. There's got to be a context. Okay. And so, you know, go. So, what is the context wherein you and I right now are reasoning? You know, and, you know, people, the most natural thing to say would be your spatial context. Like, you know, I'm here, you're there, you're to my left, I'm to your right, something like that. And I would just point out that's not sufficient to give either one of us con confidence we're really making contact with one another. Mm. That context is lifeless. It doesn't make any promises to us. It can't assure us that we really are relating to one another. For us, we'd say as Christians, the only thing that can give us genuine confidence that we actually are making contact with the world around about us is a God in whom we live and move and have our being. A person who speaks to us everywhere and at all times that this world is for you, you're for this world. This person is for you, you're for this person. That's the context in which, you know, Paul says in his sermon, you know, in the on the air at the Areopagus, that that's where, where and how we really move in, and live and move and have our being. Um, so then it just pushes the question back, though. How and through what and where is God relating to us? This is where a, a problem arises, you know, when we, we start thinking in terms of a, a Christian worldview. God has to have his relationship to us in some context. And again, we can't say it's just space. We <laughs> We can't say it's the civil government sure, it's above sure. that or our culture. Can't say it's our language game. You saw how that's going to run into a bunch of problems and you know, our, uh, you name it. It has to be, God has to himself be related to us through the mediation of nothing less than a divine person. And um, then that pushes the question back even further. Where is God's relationship to um, this other divine person, his son and his spirit? And the answer must be in the context of another divine person. Anything else lands us saying that God is either in nothing or he's in, in material or he's in chance or something other than God himself. And once you said that, you know why God can't be a binity. That would have God uh, related to the world, perhaps through the first person of the Trinity, through the second person of the Trinity. But it would just raise the question of wherein they are related. The mm -hmm. Bible tells us in and through the spirit. And that remarkably also informs our worldview that persons must be related to one another through persons. And there must be an absolutely personal God who is related to the various persons of the Trinity themselves through one another. But go ahead. So you, well, you would say that um, you have the father yeah. and the son. Yeah. And the spirit. And within the context of the Trinity, there is always an absolute personal context that yeah. facilitates the relationship of the two. So right. what facilitates the relationship of the father and the son is not some impersonal abstraction. No. Because you have an element of impersonality and irrationality that's the context. Right. 
a relationship. So having right. three always provides you have one absolute person, another absolute person, another absolute person, and the relationship of the two is always couched within the context of personality, regardless of which persons you're you're discussing. That's right. That's that's the argument. In that in, in the argument, you know, that, that, that's that's what we're trying to say. You know, when you add additional persons to that, you either have you know, someone left out in the mediation of a relationship, which, you know, renders them a sort of appendage, um, or you have groups of persons, you know, mediating the relationships between other groups of persons, but but a group of persons is not a person. It's an abstraction. It's something that, it, it is something that is synthetic that's produced out of them or something like that. And so no matter what, you end up in a situation where pure personality is not the context. And, um, and, and hence you have, you have a problem. You land yourself back into the realm of the one in the many problem, which is epistemological, uh, implications. If you add too many that, that affects your epistemology. And if you take away uh, one from the three, then that has yeah. epistemological issues. Yeah. So three is kind of the magic number, so to speak. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and of course it's, you know, even then, you know, we'd, we'd emphasize that it's a three, unlike any number three that we ever encounter. I mean, and that's, this is, you know, kind of one of the whole points when we talk about reason and we talk about the Trinity and one of the issues that we, we run into when it comes to the classical or evidentialist apologists is that we're going to say all of our thinking is analogical, all of our ideas, all of our principles are analogical to the triune God himself. And it's one of the reasons why his mode of being uh, can resist the sorts of numerical relationships as we know them, and even logical relationships as we know them and would apply them in this world. That's what we should expect from the being who is responsible for logic and reason as we know it, existing and having a, um, a fruitful relationship with a material world from which it is so distinct. Um, if we're going to talk about the being who is above and before all of that, we ought to expect that we would arrive at these paradoxical places when we try to hold before our mind, you know, the Trinity, um, again, you know, it, it, we, you know, the three is just always passing, you know, into the one and the one into the three. And it's just, that's, that's what we ought to expect when we're dealing with, um, the creator of, um, our very intellects and reality as we know it. Right. And so- I, I don't under, know if people understand the layers on which these observations about the Trinity are confirming a presuppositionalist worldview. Sure. Uh, first, there's the point that how we arrive even at this understanding of God couldn't be done without the successive disclosure of revelation through time. So again, our, our, our depths of understanding is growing. It's consistent. There's unity between our knowledge, we might say, in infancy as a race and relative maturity now um there's unity and there's continuity there um but there's real difference there's real growth and this should be exactly the sort of exciting thing that we present to the world in a way that the world in any epistemology she has really can't um can't supply the same sort of a thing i i would hope people who read this argument would go this gives me some hope that when i get to heaven there isn't going to be this day where I've got all the knowledge of God I'll ever have and it's finished and it's done. What a depressing thought that would be. Good grief. I'm done exploring. It, rather, people should have this sense that when I'm in the presence of God, I am going to have 
infinitely greater and infinitely more discoveries about the absolute necessity and relevance of this sort of God to everything, every fact. I'm going to have discovery of him that, that um, I'll go, my goodness, how, how, how did I ever live without this knowledge? Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you're going to be able to look back and go, there was always a vestige of this knowledge, even in infancy. You're mm-hmm. the God I've always known. You're the God I've always known. And I can't believe I never made the connection that, well, yes, of course you had to be, you know, one in three persons, but, but, but now it's so clear to me. That's, that's actually what we're putting out there is, is a worldview that allows for um, genuine growth in knowledge and understanding and awareness of ideas that you never thought before. And yet at the same time, this sort of ironic, uncanny, unbelievable sense that in some way you knew it all along. Mm. And that's, I mean, just ask yourself if you, know, you were one of the, the people who asked this question. When Jesus comes on the scene as, again, you know, as, as Isaiah says, behold, I do a new thing. This is the new thing, man. And yet when Jesus comes on the scene, for those who have been faithfully following the Lord and um, keeping the commandments in faith, and says in John 7, they're like, yeah, you're the one. You're the one I've always been waiting for. In one sense, you are totally surprising. In another sense, you are the one that I've always been been looking forward to. And that's the wonderful, beautiful paradox of what a, a, a presuppositional epistemology really affords. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much more true to, um, I would even just say the wonder of, of human learning and human experience in the first place. And it's our answer to the meno problem that arises for Plato. I mean, Plato has to say essentially we, we, we did know absolutely everything in some pre-existent form, we just right. forgot it, and learning is just remembering. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wouldn't say that because that actually that actually depreciates the many. The fact that there's real development in our understanding, sure. Um, sure. there ha- we had to be whole uh, originally. For us, it's much more mysterious. Yeah, you know, yeah. In some seed form, we've always known this God in, in eternity. We'll be knowing Him more and more profoundly. That's excellent. Let, let's now we have one more question, and then this is where I put the guests in the hot seat before I let them go. So I figured a lot of the people, uh, uh, some of my list, my viewers have been surprised that some of the guests I've been able to get because they're really hard to get. You guys are busy. You guys are doing stuff. So when I when I kind of uh, lasso someone in, so to speak, uh, towards the end, we just plow through the comments to see if uh, you can take rapid fire questions. And of course, if there's one that's kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure about that, we can just skip through. But Usually I put you in the hot seat and then, you know, that's okay, the you let you go. <laughs> so, so here's the last question on my primary list. And then we'll move to the comment section and see if we can pick apart some questions there. Um, all right. You're doing excellent, by the way. And so I appreciate your, your time and your thoughts. Uh, here's, the, here's the question. Why can't a Unitarian God account for intelligibility and knowledge? Couldn't the Unitarian appeal to the oneness of God's nature and the multiplicity of his thoughts as a grounding for the one and the many? How would Unitarianism reduce to skepticism with regards to knowledge? That's the last question on my list here. Well, I hope it's painfully evident what the answer would be to that. Okay. Um, why can't a one, one God in all of his thoughts? I mean, you just, what do you even mean when you talk about a God in, in all of his, his thoughts as his 
context and conversation partners. I mean, it sounds like what you did is you took a man, you put a magnifying glass over him and made him bigger and stronger and gave him many more thoughts and said, why can't he be the solution to the one in the many? Mm-hmm. You're the same reason you can't be the solution to the one in the many. Your thoughts in, in reality outside of you, see, there's this reality that painfully often uh, surprises, doesn't submit to, contradicts your thoughts. That's one of the problems of the one in the many. And the question, therefore, is in what context do uh, persons make genuine contact with a genuine other? And the answer is in the context only of persons. Mm-hmm. And so you'd be, you know, I, you'd be, I, I'd be asking, what are, what are these thoughts about? Are they about what he's about to make? Um, okay, well, then God is, uh, you know, dependent on his creation to even engage in the business of thinking. Um, is it Aristotelian? You're talking about a Unitarian uh, deity who's thought thinking itself. Well, then at least be as consistent as Aristotle and say, all you're talking about is an I, a pure miasmatic idea that doesn't do anything in the world. The world just approaches him as a sort of desire um, as something to be emulated and is best emulated in the circulation of the stars that really isn't going anywhere or doing anything. Um, what, that's, about, what about the Unitarianism of Islam? How would you use, how would you use what you just said with regards to the Trinity and critique mm-hmm. the Unitarianism of Islam? You can kind of just summarize well, that's that. exactly that. I mean, you know, Islam does kind of bite the bullet, you know, in her own scriptures, you know, speaking to the fact that, you know, no one can, can comprehend God in this, this negative sense of comprehensibility, uh, you've virtually reduced God, therefore, and this is the, the problem, to just pure uncertainty. And you see that in, um, you know, because there's, you can't print, it's like Calvin said, if you don't know God as a Trinity, nothing but, um, you know, the, the mere name of God flutters about in your brain. Um, that's what you have going on when you're denying the Trinity and opting for this purely sort of Unitarian thing it becomes impossible to say what he is because that involves predication and contrast. Mm. All you can say is that he's not this world. And again, this is why people go right back to the question, well, how do people know God in the Old Testament again? Well, first of all, because he spoke. And second of all, because he identifies himself as a creator and because there's always the seed of this unspoken multiplicity and unity that's there. I mean, it's implicit in calling him powers uh, or Elohim as opposed to simply L, but again, it's not a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity. And, um, you know, so, so that's that's where we have the, uh, again, this, this growth and development in knowledge. But I would note there's something very different between being a monotheist and being a Unitarian. Mm-hmm. I'm not persuaded that Old Testament, you know, believers were Unitarians. To be a Unitarian is to deny the Trinity. That, I mean, that really is what the point of that term is. We're talking about someone denying that God is triune. I think about my son right now, the manner in which I provide for him is not fully known to him, but he doesn't deny that I am a pastor. He doesn't deny that I'm an adjunct professor. That would imply that he knew what those things were and then thought to deny them. That's the sorry position that Islam is in. Mm-hmm. And it, it marks a deviation on the road of God's disclosure from himself um, saying, I, you know, I'm going to go this far, but, you know, autonomous reason steps in and says, I'm going to hack off the rest of this revelation. And it's really evident in the Quran that we're talking about a people who misunderstood the Trinity 
frequently reminding us that God doesn't have a mother that he could, you know, copulate with so as to produce a child. You're, just, you're not talking, uh, you're, you're working with a base understanding of, of, of the Christian religion and things like that. But um, yeah, I would, I would articulate exactly the argument that I articulate in the book about the necessity of God himself being um, in no context, but in the personal context of the persons of the Trinity. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Now, um, the the comments, uh, the questions, we're going to go through them rather quickly. You just as succinct as you can, but of course, as as fully as you as you think uh, necessary. Some of the questions may have nothing to do with our conversation. May, people might um, uh, know about you in another context and ask a question. But, you know, I like to encourage people to just because uh, this is a fun part where people are listening yeah. to the, the thing and they can kind of go through a list of you know, spitfire responses to some questions that might be on people's minds. So um, yeah. I'm going to skip the first question because it was with regards to the one and the many, and you just, you uh, explained that earlier on. Uh, okay. Someone asks here, it's up on the screen there. Theoretically, if someone is a Christian theist and has a modalistic view of the Trinity, how does that change how the Trinity applies to their understanding of precept? If you don't, yeah. yeah. Okay. If you understand the question, great. We'll keep going. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, if you're dealing with a, a person with a modalistic view of the Trinity, I mean, let, let's put it this way. You can bring in the Trinity on the front end or you can bring out in it on the back end. You can bring in the Trinity on the front end and, and start talking about the contrast between a Trinitarian absolute standard and guide and the relevance of the Trinity from the very get-go to what it means to know and to live and to act ethically in the world. Or there's the Trinity on the back end, as I had said at the beginning which is um, the need for the Trinity uh, as the grounds of redemption for the guilt that we've incurred for reasoning out of submission to God. So realistically, if you're talking to a modalist um, who already professes to believe in scripture um, you know, as their standard, well, you're probably going to start at that back end point and say you've destroyed the biblical concept of redemption. Hmm. There is no person to exact a penalty uh, for human sin uh, in distinction from the person who is is dying for human sin, uh, there's no divine person to open, you know, uh, our heart so that our faith is not just our own and our prayers are not just our our own, but you know, as they actually are, um, markedly uh, the fruit of the Spirit in us. And we would talk about the entire problem on on the back end in terms of redemption. So, you know, I did the a debate with a, a Unitarian, granted, not a modalist, um, but. But that, that would probably be the more fruitful place to start just because you do uh, have at least the profession of belief in Scripture as a place to go. But there's nothing wrong with talking to a modalist who is um, who uh, it, you might say is more philosophically adept and ready to go into the pure vacuity of the worldview. And fr frankly, when I get Jehovah's Witnesses at the door, I do this sort of thing all the time. Um, I, I'll go into... Uh, you know, essentially how their God is uh, no God at all, precisely because of these sorts of Trinitarian matters. To be honest with you, it's, it's generally more of a straight path to making contact with someone to start with. I, I love to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about how their God is not loving in and of himself. Mm. Um, it's one of the most basic things you can point out, seizing upon, of course, the classic Augustinian, you know, analogy um, of love. I mean, he just has no one to love. There's no sense in which God is inherently loving. At best, you could say he's like, you know, uh, 
loving love unactivated until he made another person. <laughs> That's right. He depends on someone else in order to love. He can't, he has to create if he wants to love. So I love to go into the realm of how, you know, his personal attributes simply are not. There's no sense in which we're talking about a God who's, who's personal. Um, and as a result, there's also no sense in which we're talking about a God who's dependable. Hence, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witness and the modalist theology is its perfect marriage is to, um, you know, essentially Pelagian or semi-Pelagian uh, soteriologies where, where your, your, your fate and your, your end is always in question. Mm. It's always mm. impossible to answer how much. And again, this is the one of many problem. I mean, how many good deeds do I need to do to uh, attain the status as an attribute of righteousness. That's the one many problem. Again, I mean, you don't worship the God who is triune, even if you didn't know he was triune as some in the Old Testament did it, you're always going to end up with um, uh, uncertain uh, theories of salvation that sure. leave you doubting and leave you without assurance. Mm. Very good. Next question. Uh, uh, someone asked, do you accept the essence energy distinction? Why or why not? I don't know if you know the context of those uh, terms. Well, I mean, uh, I can think of a lot of contexts where those uh, <laughs> terms would, would apply. Um, yeah, I, I probably, I would really, here, is it Ian? Or I, 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 I his name is, why don't you give some more definition to that? And maybe we'll see if we can get to it before, before the end of this. I mean, I appreciate it being short, but sometimes. Um, <laughs> That's right. Okay. Yeah. Next question here. Um, is Dr. Bosterman familiar with the work of James Dolezal and his arguments for the necessity of pre-Kantian classical metaphysics, et cetera? Yeah, I am aware of Dolezal. I'm primarily aware of his interactions with, um, with things written by Oliphant and things like that. Unfortunately, I just, I really haven't been able to jump headlong into that discussion. I mean, I haven't read the specific works in, in question. I've read several articles, um, but uh, but I couldn't speak directly to, unless you mentioned one, his arguments for the necessity of pre-Kantian classical metaphysics. Um, let me just say this. There are perhaps senses in which I might even agree with Dalazal on that front. There, there are senses in, like, if... If the point is, um, I would probably maybe, I might agree with uh, Dalazal in all of his critiques of the problems created by Kantian um, metaphysics. Um, where we would disagree is I would say that Kant, in spite of himself, and Hegel, in spite of themselves, and really every unbelieving worldview, in spite of itself, always does certain services to the Christian faith, enabling us to, to consider our biblical metaphysic and our biblical epistemology um, in, in new and better lights. Again, that's part of what I mean when I talk about, you know, the one many problem and, and our ability to have better perspectives on things in the course of time. So that's probably where we, Dalazal and I would, would part ways. But yeah, there's certainly things about a pre-Kantian um, metaphysic, uh, not least of which would just be the, the concept of a, a God's eye view of things. Um, there is an absolute divine perspective on reality, and we can talk about God um, without being just in this ironclad um, cage of um, either practical reason or pure or pure reason. Mm -hmm. um, 
we're not in, in those cages. And it's not true that the only way that we can talk about God is a postulate under, underlying our ethical beliefs. And so in all of those senses, I'd be like, yeah, that's true. But I would be reluctant to ever say that the one thing that, that we need to do is go backwards in, in terms of the history of metaphysics and epistemology. And if we just maybe froze in time, you know, medieval metaphysics and, you know, just for some reason didn't follow, you know, Thomas Aquinas down certain lines, then we'd all just be better off. Mm. Um, I'm not persuaded of that at all. And, I, and it is, it's kind of remarkable to me because, again, I, I tend to see things somewhat more holistically. You know, we live in a worldview where we're talking over the internet and, you know, you're asking me questions like that and Dolezal is pumping out, you know, books by the however many because we live in a world so very different than the medieval world. Mm. And it's not just that there's this accidental set of philosophies that exist in our world. And, you know, our economy, as we know it, our capacity, you know, the ability to, to make wealth as we know it, the ability to um, even to, to invent things as we have, well, those things are firmly couched in a worldview that isn't driven by um, medieval metaphysics just is you're going to have to accept that. We're all going to have to accept that and go, well, I'm sure glad that we don't live in a world that is so governed um, because the air in which we breathe is a little bit different because of the philosophies that came after that. Of course, I mean, on the other side, you point out that we live in a world where perhaps vice is able to be pursued and, you know, exponentially greater numbers too. And we'd have to work all of that out, but it has, it is related to the sorts of philosophies that, um, that uh, preva- had prevailed in the intervening, you know, five, 600 years mm-hmm. since the heyday of medieval philosophy. But again, these sorts of observations, like what I just said, are the sort of things that you wouldn't make if you didn't read people like Hegel and you didn't read people who had a, a robust sense of, you know, um, development in time, um, you know, even in, in terms of, of the ways that we think. Um, and that's one of the good things that we get um, touched on. Um, I would argue that Hegel leads us in, you know, just as dangerous a place when we're not dealing with a, a biblical trinity, but, you know, a sort of Hegelian trinity. You get Marxism. You get these, you know, bloodbath philosophies, and they're just as much religions as any religion ever were. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're dealing with some, some negative implications of those worldviews as well. Hmm. Very good. Next question. Uh, wonderful discussion. How exactly is evidence used with PRESA? What evidential argument best complements the transcendental argument? Yes. A lot of these, like, like, what are the one best, you know, I feel like I'm constantly saying that they're, you know, that's one of the beauties of what we do. And it's also one of the reasons why it's uh, like, like any sort of discipline, it's, it's not, I'm not saying anyone can't do apologetics, but uh I mean, I think most people get the sense, you know, when they watch Doug Wilson have a conversation that they probably couldn't do it quite the way he did. And, you know, the idea is there's, there is a whole bunch of, there's a bit of discernment always in about where it's best to begin that, that is cultivated through wisdom, sometimes actually regressed if you spend too much time talking on blogs and you do better to just read, you know, 10 really hard books. But um, that's, that's me, me putting my two cents out there. But, uh, Let's, okay, so with evidence, you know, here's the thing, man. There are some people who, by the Spirit's work, have already, before you got there, begun 
to deeply question what you might call the conventional wisdom of secularism and unbelief. Like they're already there, man. I don't know what it is. Maybe they had a few bad experiences at the university they went to and they're just sick and tired of what secular academia says. To be honest, man, that person talking about the veracity of scripture and the fact that, no, this story that you've been told, which is pure, if anything is mythology, it's the mythology of the story that we have scripture via a game of telephone and, you know, 10 different languages in between and every to just talk about, you know, the manuscript, um, you know, uh, uh, basis of our new testaments today, the nearness of different manuscripts to the time in which they were written and just the uniqueness of the Bible. There's some people who are, are ready that moment to eat that up. It's what they needed to hear. I mean, I usually have my Greek, Greek Bible on hand, um, you know, doing Bible and stuff, and just pulling it out and being like, look, look at my UBS fourth edition. You know, the, you can see where these manuscripts are housed. They're not mythology. Some are in London. Some are in, you know, different places all around the world. And you're just like, there are thousands of them. Sometimes that's all people really need. And, you know, that's not non-presuppositionalism. It's the presuppositionalist recognizing that God has in his wisdom uh, really done a number on their secular thinking already. Sure. <laughs> need the house roof ripped off in the same way. And you can start right there with those evidences. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, again, I mean, sometimes, you know, people, I just think about it as a pastor. I've had people whose spouses are, are not believers, but they are. They have a baby and this unbelievable evidence of God's hand has been set in front of them and they just need to be told that's what it is. Part of that's just what it means to believe that everybody actually has a knowledge of God that's inescapable. And um, I'm happy to start there with people a lot of times. Where presuppositionalism is, you know, especially valuable is when you you've met that person who they're just in this cage stage unbelief, you know, just, you know, they think that, that Christians are this unique breed of people who believe things that they can't prove. Sure. And they think sure. that they've risen above the fray. And here's the thing. It may even be the case that with the person who I meet, who just had the baby, I have to do some of that deep surgical work of the presuppositionalist and start attacking some of that cancerous secular thinking, some of that cancerous autonomous thinking that's still there and really unravel that. Um, and so, so you, you've got to see where they're at. But man, it may be the case that you hit someone with this is, you know, God's grace in your life, this new baby, and you had darn well better receive Jesus Christ as your savior because you spurned him your whole life and they're ready. You go for it. And I, I think and, that's, that's an important point because a lot of people struggle uh, when they're in the 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 game of looking at these different methodologies and be like, well, I see the strength of presuppositionalism, but man, come on, the Kalam cosmological argument is really good. And they kind of think of it as kind of this, like it's either, or when you think yeah. about it from a presuppositional perspective, everything's evidence for God. If a, right. cos a Kalam cosmological argument uh, is, it can be useful. I've written out the argument on a napkin while being a completely committed presuppositionalist. So it's right. not always this either or uh, perspective. No. Yeah. You know, you take something like the Kalam cosmological argument. I would just say that you, you know, what you're doing is you're going, there's a naive uh, way of uh, engaging that where you go, 
you know, it is just self-evident that every every effect must have a cause and you're, you're breeding, you know, belief in, in self-evidence and stuff. If I found someone, though, who was really on about that argument and, um, you know, as I do, you know, as a philosophy professor from time to time, sure. you know, I would engage it with them. And if they, you know, but what I would do, though, is I would I would ask, I maybe in the course of time, I'd be like, yeah. And, and by the way, how did you know in the first place? that every um, effect must have a cause. You know, what makes you so sure of that? You know, we've seen that, you know, once, you, once you're starting with that, you know, it's uh, something we learn from the, from the world around about us. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, it's pretty compelling to say there's, there's an uncaused first cause. But, but, you know, I would begin to probably inculcate, you know, a, a more holistic, I'd be like, yeah, you know, the truth was you were actually presupposing that uncaused, you're not just caused by him as the ground of all your movement, but he's actually the light in whom and in which um, you ever were able to appreciate the, the, the relative value of that pre, uh, presupposition or assumption that you, in the first place. Um, but, but there certainly is, my goodness, I, I do think that presuppositionalists, we do need to be more engaging. And of course, Van Til even said that. We can, we can put all of those arguments in in a better presuppositional light we don't have to stomp all over them before we get there with an interested christian i think all of it's great on things like that in in uh, reasons for faith um uh it, just excellent you know as he he deals with things like um uh, oh gosh the free will defense for evil and things like that so you could and you don't always have to use a transcendental argument right off the bat i mean you could start anywhere that's right. And, and I think what you have to recognize is that when you don't, you have to realize that the Lord himself is the one, to use Francis Schaeffer's language, who has maybe ripped off the house of their worldview already. Yep. And they just need to be fed. Arguably, that's what the people are who come to Christ in the Gospels, who are so desperate. The whole point is their worldview has already been crushed. They, their, their sense of dependence on themselves has, in God's providence, been crushed. And they say, Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, that, that's that's a presupposition. That is a man who is ready to abandon ship of life in the worldviews as he knows it. I mean, and in some sense already has. Um, and so I think that, that that's what we have to call that. Now, I'll say one last thing, Eli. You know, when it comes to um, when it comes to like the Kalam cosmological argument, the reason why we, we would be careful and the reason we'd be pump the brake and we want to say more as presuppositionalists is because we know about Kant's antinomy of pure reason. We know that you run into really strange sorts of things when you talk about um, an uncaused cause who caused everything else in, in the first place. I mean, because, you know, there, if you, if you settle down too much on the certainty of this vision of causation and how things must relate to one another as cause and effect, you, you end up asking, you know, okay, well, what about a cause for that, first cause, that thing that you're calling a first cause. And doesn't the idea of an uncaused cause contradict the whole vision of causation that I started with? And that's where we go, see, you need to, this is why you need to be led to reason analogically mm. that you're right. Our understanding of causation can lead us this far in relationship to this world and of this world as a whole, but we're arriving actually at a being who is the source of the very concept of causation. Mm. And without whom that concept would be useless and at the same time, who himself, his manner of being transcends cause and effect relationships as we know them. Mm. Uh, 
And that's why, why we, you know, stress the importance of it um, as well. So go ahead. Sure. This so, one's a doozy and it's good that it's a doozy because it gives me time to scroll down and find the next one. Cause you got reg like normal comments and people conversing with each other. Okay. So uh, Carlos says, hello, brother brand. I want to ask you, how would you argue presuppositionally that God is not only the necessary precondition for intelligibility, but how exactly human freedom, creative self-development, our wills and our overall ability to make decisions are not unipersonal in likeness, but are multipersonal analogous to the Trinity as its archetype. Sorry if right. that's a, a long one, but. <laughs> right. Well, I suppose if I were to sit down and write more about compatibilism and talk more about freedom, you know, and, and what we mean by that as reformed people, obviously it appears in our confessions and we talk about free will and we should be clear about what we do and don't mean about that. But it seemed to me that part of the paradox of what a free decision is, is that it flows from a person um, at one point in time as it, it really flows from that person as, as they currently are. And yet in a sense, your, your decisions can be so radical and so remarkable that they, they alter that your very person, they, they change you. And yet they're still you, you, you know, you, you, so, so this is a one in many problem. Your decisions are not like um, uh, code written in a computer that, you know, is just doing the same thing as, the decisions you make are actually changing your appetites. They're actually changing the course before you, and they're going to change your future decisions. And so it's an entire, it's a microcosm of, of the one many problem, you know, how a person can be free. So, you know, I mean, the biggest problem we encounter when we talk about free will and sovereignty is that most of the time people haven't even, you know, swallowed the pill of how paradoxical free will is. I mean, if free will, free decisions flow from you as purely random then you're not free. You're crazy. That's what we would say. If your choices, there's no reason why you did anything. And I hit you for no reason. I, you're, that's not an expression of Brandt. That's insanity. So it would seem mm. at the same time, we have to believe that there are choices that we can make that can really alter who we are and alter our course. Adam was created upright and he makes a decision and makes himself a sinner. That's a radical change in human nature that happens thereafter. Mm -hmm. You know, there are going to be other decisions, you know, decisions for faith that, you know, fruit of, uh, fruit of regeneration and you name it. So um, the reason this is so important is that we would say this is so fundamental, this paradox of what it means to be personal and to be able to birth free choices um, that we cannot explain it in terms of things like cause and effect relationships like we find in the material realm. It's not like that. It's more, uh, it, it's closer akin to the wonderful way that God is. And the one thing therefore that we know is that the, the one and only precondition that can hold persons together as really being persons and not the, the fruit of pure randomness or the, the, the fruit of, you know, pure programming is again, an absolutely personal God above and beyond us as our context who can sustain us as persons like unto himself. And that's part of what we're saying when we talk about ourselves as being free. We're not simple material relationships. That's not what our personality is. We could be left with Hume thinking that maybe even our consciousness is, it's not even a single sustained thing. It's not even a single sustained soul in, in, in Hume's worldview, potentially. It could just be, a pure succession of thoughts 
which in turn produce consciousness as we know it, but there's no real unity between them. Mm. So I know that that's, that's rather, you know, intense to go into that, but yeah, each one of us is a one in many problem. And, um, you know, uh, if we try to think about ourselves or explain ourselves in terms of material phenomena, we depersonalize ourselves. Um, and so therefore, you know, the one thing we do know is that only if we are sustained in the, the creature of an absolute person who is a pure harmony of the one and the many, there's no sense in which we are going to be a, a harmony of it in a finite scalar degree. Mm. Hope that's helpful, Carlos. Very good. Very good. Uh, Jacob has a question. Do you believe that plurality in the Godhead is known to the unbeliever, but not necessarily a trinity is known per the census divinitatis, Romans 1, 18? Yeah. I mean, I guess it really hinges on um, what you mean by known. It's kind of like asking me, do I think that um, my son knows the logical uh, um, argument form of modus ponens? Um <laughs> innocent. I mean, he, he uses it from time to time, I think without even knowing it. So we'd be saying that you can know things imp implicitly or tacitly, perhaps, you know, I mean, you know, Michael Polanyi he has some, some good stuff to say on, on things like that without knowing it explicitly or having articulated it to ourselves. So in that sense, I guess I would say, yeah, I think, you know, knowing a God who produced this reality such that again, um, minds make contact with material and universals with particulars, you implicitly uh, know uh, that God is, you know, is, is you know, the triune God who, who is the harmony of those things. And you might say the source of that contrast as we know it as its creator um, and all things bearing the marks of him, but it would be a different sort of knowledge than um, again, what you would have after reading the Trinity and the vindication of Christian paradox, or um, even just after having re read the Nicene Creed. Um, it's something that you're always kind of presupposing without um, necessarily articulating. Mm. Right. You know, I would just say again, it's also why I think it is just so powerful when an evangelist just gets up and belts out the gospel to people. It's explanatory power is so profound in the way it meets the way that we were actually made to think from the beginning is so uh, true that it's just this powerful place where the spirit operates to regenerate people and to open hearts and minds. And, and that's why at the front end of things, you know, just being bold preachers of the gospel might even be where you need to start. You know, instead of thinking that the unbeliever desperately needs to have, you know, um, his world be dismantled in an extremely rational way, hitting, just developing, you know, the graceful power to just tell people you are a sinner and you're hopeless and you need a savior. Mm -hmm. All I know, Jesus was apparently able to speak in a way that people said, this man speaks as one having authority and in a way that is, uh, his words just match, we would say this, this knowledge of God that people have. And it's just, they know his voice. Mm. This just can't emphasize enough, you know, how important it is that we are real practitioners of our faith. If we're going to be apolog apologists for it, I just, I don't know how often you know, people find themselves just daunted by the fact that no matter how clearly they articulated the tag, it didn't have an effect. 
I'll just tell you right now, your ability to season your words with salt, like Paul says in Colossians, it's directly related to, you know, your, your graces in the spirit. I'm not saying that the spirit can't use you if, you know, you're not a person who has made any effort at pursuit of sanctification or you name it, but there's a real connection there. And it's connected to your ability to be discerning as to what should be said. It's also even connected to your ability to just lose. My goodness, you've got to know when to just lose. In the sense that people, maybe you articulated a beautiful presuppositional argument and people still don't buy it and they're even making fun of you. Get used to just getting made fun of. Like that's, that's our bill. That's what we were told by our savior would happen. Tag is not the thing Jesus via Greg Bonson gave to you so that you don't ever have to hang your head low. It's not what it is. It drives me nuts. It drives me nuts, Eli, when I encounter presuppositionalists, again, who think that this is, you know, how we get to be smart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's actually good for the unbeliever, maybe even more important for the unbeliever than for you to really drive home the end of tag, to see you not answer a fool according to his folly for a moment, and to not throw your pearls to the swine, as Jesus says, because you recognize what nonsense it all is. Mm-hmm. And so I just, yeah, next question. <clears throat> no, you're doing excellent. You're doing excellent. Um, okay, Simon has a question here. Uh, we'll try to keep it a little more succinct. You only have a few more. You're, you're doing great. And so uh, I really do appreciate it. Uh, Simon mm-hmm. writes, Antill writes, in the introduction to systematic theology. So then, though we cannot tell why the Godhead should exist tri-personally, we can understand something of the fact after we are told that God exists as a triune being, that the unity and the plurality of this world has back of it a God in whom unity and the plurality are equally ultimate. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think I actually quote that like side by side in Trinity and Vindication of Christian Paradox next to, you know, another reference in, um, you know, the survey of Christian epistemology where he, you know, basically says, you know, why God must be triune and, you know, we, we can be sure of that. And so um, when it says we cannot tell why the Godhead should exist at tri-personally, let me tell you what I think Mantilla is, is trying to say. Um, even after we've explained, you know, in, in the terms that I have, you know, um, my argument for, um, sorry, just a second. Uh, yeah, my, for, for why God uh, must be three and only three persons. Um, we have to be clear on what we mean by that. We mean that uh, in order to explain how we've always been knowing things, how we've always been understanding things, um, we need the, the triune God, and it becomes apparent to us as we engage in reasoning by implication why exactly he must be triune, or knowledge and reality and you know ethics and all of those things just simply could not be. That's something different than saying that back of God, there's this premise that, you know, by, by again, you know, some logical argument form we're starting with, and we can say why God in himself ought to have been like he is, as if there were some set of rules above him. There's something profoundly mysterious always as to why God is the way God is. There are no reasons outside of God for why he is. And so our argument for God's tri-personality is an argument from within the Christian worldview as we're trying to make things, make sense of things and put things together. That's what we're arguing from. But we wouldn't be so vain or so bold as to say 
that we have reasons beyond God himself in the ultimate transcendent sense for why God should be as he is. That, that mystery is always there yeah. um, for us. To appeal to something external to God would assume something more ultimate than God, which would be. Yeah, I think that's what, what he is speaking of there. And that's why he then in the next breath says we can understand something of the fact. And it's that, you know, after we are told that God exists as a trying being, then we can see how that fully implicates with all of the other things that he said. And, and now we can go, yeah, that's been an essential piece all along and you can't take it out. Mm. Um, now that's clear. But um, yeah, you know, uh, again, it's, it's not unlike my kids. It's like right now my son could not deduce from my clothing, how much money I make, what books I have on the shelf. He couldn't deduce what sermon I was going to produce next Sunday, or even that I was a pastor and all that it meant to be a pastor. Well, after he finds that out, especially if I wore a clerical collar today or something like that, he'd be able to go, oh yeah, I mean, of course. You've got, I mean, the only way you'd ever be wearing those things or could be or have those books or do those things, you'd have to be a pastor. But that comes with the further disclosure of, you know, reality as, as he would know it. Okay. I have, there's just a few more questions and then I'm going to cut it short because you have been super generous with your time. Um, and I have been told by many people that uh, they don't mind when it goes close to two hours. <laughs> so that's really good. Okay. Um, so. I wonder if my congregants don't mind when my sermons go over an hour, then, you know, probably. Well, you're pretty engaging, so I don't, uh, I wouldn't mind sitting under, under your preaching. <laughs> uh, Daniel asks, uh, how can the many be ultimate when on your view, uh, he's speaking to me because we've had a past conversation, uh, exists in the context of the one. So I had expressed to him that you have a personal context, always uh, contexting the other two persons. And so yeah. which is more ultimate, is it the many, you got the two persons or the one ultimate context that facilitates the, that relationship? Why don't, why don't you give a stab at that? And uh, depends on if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. If I'm in a good mood, the answer is just yes. And if I'm in a bad word, the answer is bad mood. The answer is just no. You either got it totally wrong or totally right. Um, here's the thing. I mean, as I, I believe I expound in the chapter on, uh, oh, the, 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 uh, the equality and the inherent relations of the Trinity, I want to say it's like the second vindication in the book. Um, we're always actually in the context of all three persons. Um, I would say the imminent person of the Trinity is consistently, you know, the spirit. Uh, it's the spirit who hovers on the face of the deep. Uh, he's given credit for, uh, you know, giving life to all things in Psalm 104 and this imminent sustaining of things. You might say, therefore, this imminent atmosphere of God in which we live is especially facilitated by the spirit. But here's the thing. All of reality is related to God, especially through, you know, the logos who upholds all things by the word of his power. And so if you were to think about a relationship between man and man, I would say that the spirit is, you know, especially, um, you know, the person of the Trinity in whom we live and move and have our being. If you want to think of a relationship between all of creation in God, it's especially the son who is, is meeting, well, especially after the incarnation. And, uh, you know, he's the one, uh, you know, the sovereign over all of creation. And so that atmosphere is always tripersonal. God is always the one to whom, through whom, and imminently through whom we're relating to our neighbor. Uh, so relating 
we're always relying on all three persons of the Trinity, hence the many, not just the many, but specifically the three. So I suppose if I were to correct the question in any way, it would be that we're ultimately always reliant on the three who are one essential God. And hence uh, the created one in the many always has back of it in uh, the um, absolute triune one in the many. Um, so, so, so it's always both. I think, I think if you, after you hear that explanation and you read the second vindication in the book, you'd be able to see that point more clearly. All right. Very good. Daniel has a follow-up question here. Uh, what importance does defending the historicity of the Bible have in light of the transcendental argument? Should it ever be debated? Well, yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think, uh, I think it can be fantastic for the person who, um, who again, even on the front end, who just is already maybe by the spirit taken an interest in the wonders of the Bible. So it's, it's always fantastic and it's fantastic for us too. I mean, uh, we're all better off in this room as presuppositionalists, uh, knowing just exactly how, you know, the science of textual criticism, you know, goes about. And, um, you know, then, then we, if we were to talk about the historicity of the Bible, yes, on the front end, we're already much more happy that the cities mentioned in the Bible are actually places on planet earth. Some of them live cities since biblical times, unlike the Mormon who looks down and says, there are no of these, none of these cities anywhere. I mean, Yes, it is the sort of thing that at least in our worldview, um, we're going, we're seeing direct confirmation from the facts for what we believe. And that's, that's awesome. Um, it would be uh, a, a radically different task for us uh, to, to be engaged. It would, it would be really damning to our worldview, I would say, if we believed in the sort of thing that the, the Mormon does, which is almost holistic apostasy and then somehow revival of the faith. Um, the only way that we're able to, to discern and decipher new revelations is from prior faith and prior faithful people relying on the revelation that's been given. But when you have a whole worldview where the revelation itself, everything it talks about, all of its cities, all of its people, it's just a big blank. I mean, and, and it comes on the scene as this utterly no thing, new thing with no continuity in the past. I know you're not talking about the God who is the God who transcends the problem of the one and the many, because that God is the God who produces continuity in time um, with all of the changes and the differences and you name it. That's why he's the God of biblical redemptive history, not the God of mystery Mormon religion with just total disappearance gaps that <laughs> nothing to bridge. Um, you know, these things are utterly related. And it's the presuppositionalist job to be adept to those things, to be able to see these, this network of connections and keep setting it before the unbeliever to show how remarkably different in every imaginable way and beautiful and profound and inspiring uh, biblical Christianity is to every alternative. That's excellent. This is the last question. And I do apologize, folks. I'm surprised uh, Brent has not passed out. It's uh, we're two minutes and two, uh, two hours and two minutes uh, over. Uh, this is the last question. So I do apologize if there are some more questions coming in. Um, we just I, I do want to be respectful of, of Pastor uh, Bosterman's time here. Uh, so here is a uh, big fan of Boston, as you can tell, uh, the sire. Uh, he asks, uh, what is the connection of God being inherently personal and the grounding of ethics? Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there's just the basic one many problem um, that arises there as to how you can have, um, again, laws. Laws are, you know, a sort of ethical universal that encompasses every situation or sufficiently does to not produce, you know, radical injustice. Who, who could we trust to make those sorts of laws? Well, frankly, only the sort of God who knows the end from the beginning, because he is the sovereign um, who is the, the great author of it, who wrote all of our days down in his books before any one of them came to pass. So there's, there's that, you know, how, how do we have laws that don't do violence to people? I mean, that's one angle you could go at it with. I mean, or you could you go at it just, you know, simply from the angle of like, you know, authority. Um, if you don't have a God who is, um, who transcends the one of many problem and he exists in a realm of, of chaos and uh, a chance like the Mormon deities do. And he's, he, he's, you know, the slave of time, just like you and me. Um, again, you know, on what basis? So, you know, on what ground can he legislate for anyone? Is it just that he's more mighty than the others uh, for the time being? And who's to say a, a more mighty deity doesn't displace him? It just raises the question of authority. It places you right in the realm of Plato's Republic. And, you know, whence arises, um, you know, any definition of justice as just. And if you don't have an absolutely personal reality, um, there's no answer to that question. There's no way to even begin start starting to answer that question. Mm-hmm. If justice is something objective, as opposed to, again, uh, something that's ever changing. And so those are just a couple of ways I, I'd say you could go at it. Mm. Well, that is it for the questions. Brant, I am so, so appreciative. You've given me so much of your time here and it, it's been a lot. And so uh, thank you so much for being on. I think you did an excellent job. And um, I've studied this stuff for years and you've given some really gold, good golden nuggets that I have to go back. And I'm one of those guys that go back and listen to his own shows. So um, I, I'm going to go back and listen to it and kind of process a lot of the stuff. Uh, that you said, because there's so many good uh, things that you've mentioned here in, in this discussion. So thank you so much. And guys, thank you so much for, for bearing with us and listening in. Again, if you have any questions uh, related to apologetics or presuppositional apologetics specifically, you can email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And if you have not already, uh, don't be uh, lame, a lame-o. Go and subscribe to the YouTube uh, uh, channel, uh, Revealed Apologetics, and the podcast. This discussion here, I will be using the audio as a podcast episode as well, so people can um, uh, listen to it uh, if they're more of a podcast person. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, Stay tuned for Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern. I'll have Dr. James Anderson on to talk a little bit about the nature of precept, I'm sorry, uh, transcendental arguments. Uh, That's it for today. Thank you so much, guys. Hold on, hold on. Before you go, can can we close with a prayer? Absolutely, yes, that'd be wonderful. I was uh, gonna do that before we ended uh, in the impersonal closed studio, but why not do it here? Well, yes, you know, I'm always uh, I'm always skeptical at my own own abilities to uh, to persuade or to. Um, and I mean this I, when you really talk to people who hate the Lord, um, you know that there's a certain just fundamental weakness that we have. Um, as creatures to change people's hearts and minds. So I'm just going to pray that the Lord would bless um, any listener and uh, anybody who's engaging in presuppositionalism uh, that they'd have the right nuance and sense of what it's all about. And um, maybe even anyone who's listening and who is an unbeliever and found their way here. So let's pray. Thank you. Mighty God, we are uh, 
we're weak in our flesh. God, even when we have uh, minds that, you know, some philosophers would tell us we're properly functioning. Um, Lord, we tire. Uh, we, we are subject to emotions. Um, Lord, sometimes we can see the sense of, you know, brilliant arguments. And sometimes it's just lost on us. Lord, this isn't surprising. You've told us that uh, you've made an absolutely compelling and even condemning argument for, for your, your existence and your attributes and your character that every single person who's ever breathed the breath in your creation has been exposed to. And look at us. Look how recalcitrant we are to um, profess faith in you. And even if we've done so to really believe you, especially in the face of anything like a season of trial and um, and burden. And so, God, I just I lift up to you all of our own hearts and minds. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that um, we would never mistake uh, presuppositionalism uh, for our Savior. We'd never mistake uh, good arguments for you. Pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that as we, we study these things and we try to hone our um, presentation of the faith and um, Lord, even the way that we uh, bring it to unbelievers resistant to it, I pray, Lord, that we would um, grow in, in the graces of your spirit as well. Lord, that our characters would be conformed to the character of Christ and Lord, that we would be able to more immediately in everything uh, see and hear your voice um, speaking to us um, what you would have us do as your spirit recalls this, the scriptures to us and brings to bear your special revelation in our encounters with all of the natural revelation round about us every day. God, I pray for the many listeners. I know a lot of people are interested in, in presuppositional apologetics and I'm thankful for that, Lord God. And I pray that it would foster rich faith um, not, and not ever diminish it. God, I lift up to you the masses who may be listening who simply don't know you, Lord. God, I imagine that so many of the things that we have talked about uh, <laughs> might seem so foreign, so, so crazy. And God, may we never cower to admit that in so many ways it is. And when we look at this worldview of ours through the lens of unbelieving secular thinking, there's just something downright crazy about it. And I pray, Lord, that the witness of, of a bunch of people sitting around willing to talk about this, listen to it, you name it, and be enthralled with it, would itself um, be something that your spirit works through to open the hearts and minds of others to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things for your glory, for the good of those who love you in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so very much for that. And once again, guys, um, if you could, if you want to learn more about uh, Pastor Bosterman, um, there are some, I think, some other discussions on YouTube as well that you've done. And they could um, purchase your book, um, The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox and Interpretation and Refinement of Theological Apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. Always remember to be balanced. It's not just about intellectual argumentation. We are speaking to people who need to hear the gospel. And so let us never separate those two very important things. Well, with that said, that's it for this show. Thank you very much and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.